Hello you and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we are talking about Cape Fear, we're talking about the Martin Scorsese remake of Cape Fear, and we will also be talking a bit about the original, and we're talking about it all with the great Julie Klausner, who we love so dearly. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed, and I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. And hey, before anything else, do you like music? Carolyn Kendrick, who produces this show and she produces You're Wrong About, has a new song that's coming out this Friday on Bandcamp Friday, but you can hear it here first. It's called Lullaby. It's a cover of the great Chicks song Lullaby, and I love it. It's coming out this Friday, Bandcamp Friday. And Bandcamp Friday is cool because whenever you buy something on Bandcamp Friday, 100% of the proceeds go straight to the artist. It's a great way to support musicians. Comes out this Friday. You can find all the links to Carolyn's Bandcamp in the show notes here. It'll start streaming next week, so you can send it to all your friends, et cetera, et cetera. Put it on playlists, all of that good stuff. And you can hear the song at the end of this episode. It's so sweet. It's so lovely. It's a great palate cleanser. for a conversation about Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear. So please listen all the way to the end for that. Thank you, Carolyn, for sharing Lullaby with us here. Okay, so Cape Fear is a 1991 American psychological thriller film directed by Martin Scorsese. It is a remake of the 1962 film of the same name, which was based on the 1957 novel The Executioners by John D. MacDonald. The film stars Robert De Niro, Nick Nolte, Jessica Lange, Joe Don Baker, and Juliette Lewis. And just so you know, because we talk about the original quite a bit, the original, Cape Fear, which came out in 1962, was directed by J. Lee Thompson and written by James R. Webb. Julie Klausner is, of course, a writer, a comedian, an actress, and a podcaster. She co-hosts the great podcast Double Threat with Tom Sharpling. Julie is on strike, of course, but it is worth mentioning that she wrote for Schmigadoon and that she is the creator of Difficult People. I love Julie so much. I'm so glad that she's here. She came on and talked about Pretty in Pink last year. We have her here talking about Cape Fear. She has this video coming out called Silence. Again, if you've been listening to our bonus episodes this year, that'll mean a lot to you. She's the best. Love Julie. So glad she's here. Keep an eye on her social channels, etc. for that video, which comes out at the end of this week. Big week for music from our friends. What is going on in your world, everybody? How are you doing? What are you thinking about? What are you reading? What are you watching? What is bringing you joy? Let us know at You Are Good Pod on what used to be called Twitter. <laughs> what a mess that is. Let us know uh, on Instagram at You Are Good Pod. Let us know on Blue Sky. You know, well, we might be on other platforms depending on how the week goes. Who knows what's going on out in the world of social media, but let us know how you're doing. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. We were all on vacation this past week, which is why you didn't get an episode last week. Uh, What often happens is we'll go on vacation and then go, oh yeah, we got to release an episode. (laughs) So thank you so much for your patience. Had a lovely time. And on my way back to California, I had the great pleasure of sitting next to Emily Sue Leibowitz and we talked for uh, the whole of a six hour flight. We talked about poetry. We talked about Altamont. We talked about uh, hermeneutics. Uh, memoir, oral histories. It was so cool. You know, like, you know, when you are on a plane and you're like, oh no, I might have to talk to a person. (laughs) 
I could tell it was going to be cool. We had a really lovely conversation. And I just want to let you know that Emily, along with Laura Flam, just put together an oral history of the 1960s girl groups. It's called But Will You Love Me Tomorrow? And it comes out in September. It's cool. I She gave me a galley copy and I read uh, a good chunk of it this morning. It's super cool. I love oral histories. There's so much going on in this book. And then, you know, they talk with folks like Cher and Carol King and Whoopi Goldberg. It's cool. It's cool. Check that book out. Your Good is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. You help make our weirdo art lives possible. We're able to come to your ears because of you. You make it possible. Thank you. And in exchange for that support, you get bonus episodes. We talk about all sorts of things. We talk about Sex in the City. We talk about Injust Like That. We talk about Hannibal in the whole uh, Lecter-verse. So thanks to everyone who makes this possible. Okay, that's enough words from me to kick off a conversation about Cape Fear. Let's, uh, let's dive into it. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Or we're not even covering Cape Fear 1962, but Cape Fear 62 enters with, hey, daddy, Mm. Sarah Marshall. Oh, boy. (laughs) Thank you. I've been waiting for you to say that this whole time. I did not watch the 1962 Cape Fear in preparation for this. But last night I did watch the Simpsons episode. Great. And I also listened to a bit of the audiobook of the book it's based on The Executioners by John D. McDonald. Ooh, la la. Which really holds up. I love a novella. This is something I'm realizing. Um, Alex, have you seen any <laughs> critically acclaimed movies recently where there's so much Joe Don Baker? <laughs> Are you talking about Mitchell? Mitchell. <laughs> my, 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 my Mitchell. What would your mother say? I could not believe when we got Joe Don Baker in this and then he just stayed the whole time. I could, even though you said it, I couldn't believe he it. He stayed the whole time. And who, uh, Sarah Marshall, who are we joined by to talk about this Martin Scorsese classic today? We are joined today by just one of the great lights of our time, Julie Klausner. <laughs> Hi, I'm so delighted to be here. Oh my gosh, what a pleasure to see both of your faces. And I'm just, I'm I'm so happy to be back on the show. Thank you for holding on to the bottom of our car as we drove all the way to the coast (laughs) for so long. Such upper body strength, Julie. Well, to be fair, there there is a strap. So (laughs) when I get tired, I just squeeze harder with my toes. (laughs) that's so nice Julie you recommended and thank you for your patience because we are a show that takes seasonality of the movie we're covering very seriously and you recommended us watching this movie like one half of a year ago thanks for your patience and waiting it out and I'm curious about what made Cape Fear the movie you wanted to bring onto the show well I just love both of your brains so much and I wanted to talk about toxic masculinity (laughs) and I, and I wanted to talk about it's, it's funny. It it kind of, this movie kind of gets lost in between Scorsese's like, yeah. um, In between Goodfellas and Casino. Mm -hmm. And it is such a powerhouse, such a like, you know, he's at the top of his game and he seems to have a lot to say. And there's, 
you know, gender and sexual violence and he's not being glib. Mm-hmm. And I was just excited to dig into like something I know would leave us all full. It's not a snack, mm. is it? No. no, it's a, it's like a huge piece of Detroit style pizza of a movie <laughs> with rank. Well, before we dive in in a bigger way, and I'm sure we'll dive in in small ways along the way, uh, Sarah Marshall. Yes. What is Cape Fear? What is it about? I hope you'd say, Sarah, why don't you handcuff my foot to a sinking houseboat and take us down to Cape Fear? Well, that's sort of how anyone asks someone to host a podcast with them. (laughs) I'm going to handcuff your ankle to this sinking ship. Is that okay? You have my consent. Now get some snowball mics and let's do this. Sarah, crack crack open your copy of Sexus Mm -hmm. and take us into the cape. Oh my God. Okay. We will get to the Sexus. It'll be great. Um, Okay. So Cape Fear, 1991. It is so 1991 (laughs) that Juliette Lewis watches the music video of Ben Cott Steelin' while listening to Guns N' Roses' Patience separately. I noticed Like, that. we're in... <laughs> we are in the early 90s. Well, that's sort of like the... the that was like the dark side of the moon Wizard yes. of Oz mashup of our generation. It is so 1991 that there's an in-universe scene in which people are watching Problem Child in the movie theater. Yes, oh my god. I love when that scene, when you get to that scene, I was like, is that Problem Child? Sure is. Sure is. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. It's so good. Meanwhile, the, the guys who wrote Problem Child also wrote Ed Wood. Ah. And I'm almost like, I'm almost wondering, I mean, they're, they're so brilliant. Ed Wood's like my favorite movie. <laughs> One of my favorite. Ed Wood featuring Max Casella, my favorite newsy. Oh, he's fabulous in that. He's fabulous he in that. But I wonder how they felt about being included in that because it's almost there's almost like a bit of a punchline. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're like we got to step up our pussies and write Ed Wood. <laughs> Cape Fear, 1991, is a remake of Cape Fear in 1962 which I believe you both mm. watched in preparation for this, which I did not, but I'm excited to hear about it from you guys. A movie that features Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum and Alex, you summed up the moral of this movie to me is sometimes you just have to kill a guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gregory Peck is known for two very mm-hmm. big movies. And one is, you know, take a pause before you think you should kill a guy and maybe don't kill him because he's he's actually a good guy. He just looks mm-hmm. scary. And the other one is sometimes you just have to kill a guy. <laughs> right. You got your Boo Radleys over here and your Max Cady's over here. The yin and the yang. He Spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen 62. He doesn't kill the guy in that. Like, it's like American justice is going to take care of it, even though it was shit the entire time. Good God. <laughs> well, spoiler in both. I don't want to step on your summary, but they're both passive leads. Mm-hmm. Sam Bowden is... You, you, you tell the story, daddy. Are we all calling Sarah daddy today? Yep. Okay. That's it. If you wish. Absolutely. If it pleases the court. (laughs) So, yeah. So, Alex, you were saying you appreciate that this movie has cameos from the guys in the original. 
Marty loves fan service because Marty is a is fan. a fan. It's like when we get Paul Newman in the like the color of money is just a sequel to the hustler. Like we get Paul Newman. He brings yes. back his heroes. Marty invented Top Gun Maverick because he was like, what if we do a sequel 500 years That's later? Right. Top Gun Maverick is the color of money to Top Gun's hustler. <laughs> yes. So excited. I just love you guys. I'm so happy to be here talking about this. <laughs> I love you. I'm so happy to be here. It's like a horrifying movie. We're going to talk about like, the worst things that human beings could ever be capable of. <laughs> this movie's very upsetting. Yeah. We got to have fun. We got to make it fun. Very upsetting movie. Very upsetting movie. But just as a side note, this the show is really about casting a jealous eye on a lot of heroes <laughs> and exposing their feet of clay. And I'm not saying Marty doesn't have feet of clay. We know he does. All of his movies are about your sad daughter watching you do too much cocaine <laughs> feet of clay but like we love him he's our precious little boy <laughs> he really is <laughs> i love him so much i love that he's like loves movies more than almost anyone he's making movies for mm. so clearly which is the opposite of the case with a lot of people who make movies i think a lot of people who make movies or at least on the finance side, do not like them at all, which is very interesting. They could just as well be making butter or footstools. And so, yeah, Cape Fear is a remake of this 1962 movie. It is about Nick Nolte and the Gregory Peck role. Incredibly, like if you heard that they were doing a remake of Cape Fear with Nick Nolte in it, like who would you assume he's playing? <laughs> I learned that in the credits after watching Cape Fear 1962, I watched this movie immediately mm -hmm. after and saw Nick Nolte's name and was like, because <gasps> <laughs> it's yeah. hard to believe, but he does it. He nails it. He does it. There were a lot of other folks considered, including Harrison Ford. Oh, wow. Harrison Ford would have been great, I think, Absolutely. but apparently he wanted to play Max Cady, which is not knowing your strengths, Harrison. <laughs> But it's also knowing the, what the good role is. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> I, I think I think Kevin Klein did a reading of it oh, wow. um, when they were working on the the script. That would be fun. That would be a different vi vibe, a little bit. Absolutely, it would make the Gilbert and Sullivan funnier. It definitely would have complicated my feelings towards Sam, which, as you'll see, are negative. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, and I watched the Siskel and Ebert review of this a while ago, and Siskel and or Ebert said that one of the th ways this movie works so well is because Sam is an asshole, <laughs> and that Robert De Niro, who plays Max Cady, his nemesis, is doing such a great performance that you're kind of like, I like him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but that's definitely a difference from yeah. the, the 1962 version, as Alex knows that they made some major tweet, but it also makes it a more interesting character for Nick Nolte to play. Yeah. No doubt. And Nick Nolte is like perfect. Like Gregory Peck, it's hard to not like in any role ever. Yeah, and Nick Nolte is perfectly like on the surface, you know, barely has it together and underneath has nothing together. Mm -hmm. So it's great. <laughs> yes. Very repressed, has kind of the same glasses that I think scott glenn wears as jack crawford in the silence of the lambs it's oh yeah like, you're totally right and he just looks like all the color has been drained of all his clothes and face and everything yes, yes. it's just like being like the the whitest man but don't you think that's like that's part of the class 
contrast because mm. Max Katie is in all yeah. of these like Hawaiian shirts and really loud totally. clothes. And, and, and so he and Jessica Lang like dress expensive. Mm. They're, they're doing like J crew. Like when the gap was doing just like their only gap colors were light blue and white. <laughs> yes. They're like doing true prep and Max Katie is like, you know, new money. It's also, it's like this movie is not without Phantom of the Opera vibes and like, <laughs> Yeah, and to be clear, I don't think Roger Ebert was like, that, that Max Katie, rarer, <laughs> but like, that, <laughs> that that's how he gets into the family. And I'm very curious about what his relationship with the daughter character is like in the original. But in this case, uh, Nick Nolte is a family man. He's got his hot wife, Jessica Lang, and his daughter, Juliet Lewis, who's 15, and is, you know... A 15-year-old girl, so the object of intense sexual scrutiny from everyone. And that's really kind of one of the most consistent things in the book. And in the book, actually, um, Sam Bowden, the main character, was a witness against mm-hmm. Max Cady. He witnessed him committing a rape when they were in when they were enlisted um, during World War II. Is that true in the first movie, Alex? Yeah. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's an interesting change. Well, actually... It's not only that he was a witness, but that he stopped it, that he mm-hmm. came in, stepped in right. and stopped him from like completing the act. Mm. Right. And in this case, he was Max's public defender in this case. And he uncovered a piece of potentially allegedly exculpatory evidence, which is that the victim was, quote, promiscuous, which uh, on the Wikipedia page for Cape Fear, there's like a section that's like North Carolina law. That's like, actually, like this piece of evidence would not have been admissible after 1979. But because the event took place in the, in the movie in 1977, it would have been admissible in court. Is that because she was a minor or is it just because it's not admittable for other like? Yeah, according to our friend Wikipedia in North Carolina, you stop being able to introduce evidence about the sexual past huh. of the victim. Although I don't know how many if that's true, if that was true nationally at the time, or if that was when North Carolina did it, because like, clearly there are many ways legally or not to introduce that kind of material still. And in them posing this also, I mean, I, we can pick this, we can talk about just that fact alone for the rest of the entire episode, but like yes. them posing, I thought that that addition rather than, it being a matter of him stepping in and it was that he procedurally got in the way of something that on its own is super fucked up. Mm-hmm. The intervention upon suppressing ev- upon evidence and the fact that that evidence could be used is a really fascinating contradiction mm-hmm. to like make a person think about. Yeah. In your thriller. <laughs> Yes, in your thriller, and that alone as a tweak is was a really fascinating and like incredibly important decision. It's so brilliant to make the reason why Max Cady is mad at him, not because he prosecuted him and put him in jail, but because he was his public defender and choose to withhold a piece of evidence that could have helped him out of mm-hmm. a sense of morality right. to say like this guy belongs in jail i saw what you did i saw what you did to that girl that's my dick nolte yeah. <laughs> and in his passivity did what he thought was ethical but you're you're right alex it it posits a world in which you're like if those are the rules that's gross right, why am i totally. playing a game mm-hmm. and because and, and because sam Bowden's whole thing is the law and and playing 
the game fairly. But if those are the rules of the game, then why are you loyal to it? Right, 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 right. Totally. Yeah. It, that nugget gives your brain so much to do on its own. And then there's the rest mm-hmm. of the movie. Because <laughs> it's one of the only good things Sam Bowden does. <laughs> Otherwise, he like is not faithful. He, he doesn't. Yeah. I, I don't think he gives his daughter enough like attention. No. Yeah. And withholding that evidence is is... I don't know, there's definitely an argument to be made that this is a movie about, like, morals versus ethics and, like, which one Sam is acting on at a given moment is really fascinating. But I do think that his loyalty to the law in this case is fascinating as well as, like, his passivity being the thing that makes this guy, like, go off the deep end. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. I think it's interesting that, like, a lot of sort of big budget, highly successful kind of action thriller movies of the late 20th century and many movies that we talked about on the show basically come down to like, regardless of like whatever ideals you have, surely if someone is going to kill your family, you have a right to destroy them, right? And it's always like, yeah, well, yeah, you do. And that's like a big thing we like to talk about in America, especially I think in like the 60s through the turn of the millennium, after which point we were just like, we forgot to wonder about it at all, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, there's also like the extent of stand your ground. And at a certain point, like if you believe everything is your ground, then (laughs) which white people tend to, because there's a lot of Confederate flags in this movie, among other things. Isn't that fascinating in that, in that 4th of July parade? Marring an otherwise perfect family film. (laughs) Yeah. We have all those Confederate flags, and then we have the fantastic, mind-bogglingly wonderful line to be in a thriller. The South has a fine tradition of savoring fear, which is... Yeah, which is true. Incredible. (laughs) But I wouldn't brag about it. I want to give screenwriter Wesley Strick a shout-out. Hell yeah. This Mm. script goes hard <laughs> and thank you Wesley and Marty did like a phenomenal job of bringing this to life and obviously like Robert De Niro holy shit but like Wesley Strick mm-hmm. I I watched the you know little documentary the making of on the on the blu-ray mm-hmm. and so much of what we love about this movie is all from him like the the fourth of mm-hmm. setting it around the fourth of July and like I, I mean there's just there's so much it's just such a great script and he even talked about how like some of the inspiration from Juliette Lewis's character came from his own sister, who was oh, like, wow. like a character and like, frankly, horny. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I do want to make sure that, you know, we speak to her sexual agency yeah. as well as her being like the object of, you know, mm-hmm. like the sexual predatory gaze. Like she is um, so like hungry for attention in this. And she does such a, a visceral job of communicating it. Well, and I found, I also found out I was so, in watching both, I was so taken by the fact that I was like, oh, like Nightmare and Elm Street feels like a response to Cape Fear. It feels like the response to the original <laughs> Cape Fear. And I looked it up and it's mm-hmm. hard to look up and find any of those connections because Wesley Strick went on to write the remake of Nightmare and Elm Street, which is really funny and makes a lot of sense huh. because they have so much in common. They do, and and at the end when De Niro yeah. the, is burned, and he and he's starting to like he's starting to just like shoot zingers. Totally, he's a Freddy character. Basically, you're like, oh man, he's and he's and he's yeah. unkillable. You're like, this has become he's he's Freddy Krueger now. Yeah, the last third of this movie is a slasher. And then you have to sink him like Jason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Marty's been watching the slashers. He's like, I like him. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yes. So Sam Bowden, our kind of hero, withheld this piece of evidence and Max Cady went to prison for 14 years for battery. He kind of got some kind of a deal for him. Uh, but now he's getting out of prison and he's covered in tattoos that are very expository. <laughs> and I, like many people, grew up watching the Simpsons episode, Cape Fear. I haven't seen that in 30 years. It's so good. I can remember the one with him under the car hitting his head on every rock. Like, mm-hmm. I can see that yeah. clearly. <laughs> That's a thing I learned as like a 10-year-old from a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. And that is not in the original. Robert Mitchum has no car tricks no, no, no. in the original. <laughs> I mean, that that is like a very, it's an obvious joke. Because you're like, boy, you would hope those roads in like coastal Georgia or whatever are level. <laughs> The problem is it only makes him stronger. Like those guys who beat him up, it only makes him like angrier. Yes, I know. He's so great. Yeah. So Robert De Niro as Max Cady is getting out of prison and he is like pissed. I'm sure he's already killed multiple people that we don't know about. He is just like he's a killer, right? And a, and a, and a rapist. He's he's especially, yeah. you know, yeah, sexual violence in particular. And, and in that documentary, he talked about like listening to tapes of like specifically like serial mm-hmm. rapists and you yeah. know, people that have done yeah. specifically like to women, like he seems to be turned on by, mm-hmm. by violence against women. Yeah. And I think that that's definitely a theme in Scorsese or specifically <laughs> Scorsese's work with De Niro. The idea, I mean, something that I find interesting about America's serial killer lore is that it's a way for us to explore kind of, patriarchal sexual violence and do it by looking at the most extreme example but something that like you know max katie is dangerous because he targets teenage girls but then the whole world also in many ways targets teenage girls so it's kind of a way of looking at the whole culture um around him and kind of building him but yeah and he is kind of a like sweet talking sort of he likes talking about God, which is always very threatening and feels actually reminiscent of, I don't know what he's like in the original Cape Fear, but Robert Mitchum and Night of the Hunter. Yeah. Nothing scarier than somebody talking about the Lord while coming for you, like Annie Wilkes. Oh, yeah. And by the way, you know what else? You know what other movie I was thinking about because the original Cape Fear came out in 62 is Lolita. Oh, wow. Yeah. For sure. And that scene, the, you know, meet me at the theater, very iconic scene with, uh, Juliette Lewis and Robert De Niro, and he is like seductive towards her. And the original is literally just Robert Mitchum chasing this girl around yeah, the yeah, school, yeah, totally. like physically chasing her like a cat would chase another cat. Or um, cat would taste a mouse. The biggest, and we'll get into b- differences in, in sort of a bigger yeah. way, I'm sure. But like the bigger, the biggest difference between these movies outside of the plot points is that in the first movie, the daughter is just like chum. Like she is something that will Mm. get eaten by a shark probably. And you have to stop the shark from doing the eating and, you know, an extension of, of him. And in this movie, the daughter is as much the complicated outcome of her complicated parents as she is the fixation for this person who, for Max Katie. Right. And I, I love the Scorsese movie theme of having like, showing the daughter of a miserable marriage and showing her like reacting to her parents having a fight. He does it so often and it's always pretty heartbreaking and you're always like, ugh, what are we doing? (laughs) Because like 
there is this, I don't know, the cyclical thing where like by the time you become a parent, it seems a lot of the time you're just like, well, this, the kids don't even know what's going on. This is just like a necessary fight to have right now. And you don't remember what it's like to be a kid with no control over what your parents are doing, hearing them tear into each other. And I love that as a as a Scorsese motif. And so, yeah, we have kind of a crummy marriage between these two, um, partly because Sam Bowden is just kind of, I don't know, just like kind of like Mr. Man in Duel, you know, just like a man who a man of half measures, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, well put. Because and to to speak to that, he has like a standing like racquetball flirtathon with Ileana Douglas. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? But like, are they? Is he like having secret racquetball with her? But they're not having sex. And the way that the racquetball is shot, you know, it's so like like he slams into her yeah. in a way that like it may as well be a love scene. So, and then shows her yeah. how to do it right. You know, the classic arms around her and it's gross (laughs) yeah but man Ileana Douglas is so fucking hot and (laughs) she's the best (laughs) the best ever always anytime (laughs) I love a movie where Ileana Douglas does a sport right because she's playing racquetball in this and she she skates yeah exactly and to die for two amazing movies so good and so she so he has some kind of a long-standing something going on with Ileana Douglas and who's a clerk at the the firm he's a law clerk yeah so they like talk about the courts but then Max Cady gets free and so his first order of business is to seek revenge on uh Nick Nolte I'm just gonna call him Nick Nick Nolte (laughs) um it's just more fun to say because he lost 14 years of his life and he he couldn't read during the trial which he will remind you of. He doesn't shut the fuck up about that. My God. No. You're like, how many years was it? 14, was it 14 months? It really does like cut the tension watching this movie if you pretend that he's a friend of yours that is obsessed with this one topic. Like I know everyone has someone where you're like, oh my God, like so-and-so is gonna bring up how she knows Michael Yuri like every time. And then every time she does, you like lock eyes with your friend. That's like Max Katie talking about being in prison. Yeah. Oh. It's like how people feel when I talk about why I don't want to watch the Newsies stage musical. We know. Mm-hmm. 14 years. Yeah. So in Cape Fear, Max Katie is coming after Nick Nolte. He begins by, well, the family has a dog. Guess how that goes for them. Yeah. You're welcome. But yeah, so and then he comes after Ileana Douglas, who gets stood up on the 4th of July parade day. And she has very flirty drinks with Max Cady. And they tell fun jokes. And then they're having like very giggly sex. And then he, trigger warning, trigger warning, bites her face like he's Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. It's the same year. Yeah. Wow. So is Hannibal Lecter like, like Max Cady? And I also ask you, who's scarier? Someone who acts like he's, to quote Mark Corrigan, the last scion of a decaying European dynasty or some Bible thumping creep who wants to make out with your daughter? Better, better. And yeah, better that than like the area. Because I the thing about Silence of the Lambs is like Hannibal's the only one who listens to her. (laughs) Right. Like, like that's sort of why they have that connection is like all these other men in her life are just kind of like 
bossing her around or being shitty or ignoring her. And It's true. Hannibal really does listen. Yeah. And the great thing that this movie nails is like, I think like a lot of people in their brain think that, you know, manipulation happens by way of telling lies. And often it happens by way of telling very specific truths. Mm. And that's how he ends up manipulating uh, Juliette Lewis later is saying all of these like very clear facts about the way that her family actually operates in an mm-hmm. extremely manipulative way. And that's yeah. like a thing that like Hannibal <laughs> ends up doing long term in the storyline to Clarice. Shit. <laughs> yeah. And Hannibal asks more questions. I mean, for his own gross yeah. reasons, but like. Yes, absolutely. That's why I mean, like, he really does. He's like, tell me about your childhood. <laughs> and that is why, like, because, like, the men in these, these, the Hannibal books are like, oh, Hannibal Lecter, he's the scariest. He, like, peers deeply into your soul. And for Clarice, I think probably she's just like, finally. He's a really good listener. Right. Like, she would like someone yeah. to peer into her soul for once. Yeah. As opposed to just, like, sexually harassing yeah. her. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, so he comes after Eliana Douglas, which results in Nick Nolte's wife finding out about the affair, which results in them having a fight and their daughter resorting to watching a Jane's Addiction video while listening to a Guns N' Roses song. (laughs) (laughs) The um, Eliana story also... thing it has in common with the original is that that character even though the character in the original they call they call her a drifter just a girl that is not connected to the story in other words but she um also won't press charges and and that is something they i think are like refreshingly truthful about when it comes to the realities around sexual violence that Mm -hmm. women are a sh- well, I mean, there's a, it's really a great scene between Nick Dolce and Eliana yeah. Douglas when he's trying to mm-hmm. persuade her to testify for his own benefit, which is because mm-hmm. he wants Max Cady put away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she is explaining to him, this is going to harm me. You know, we're in the law office. We've laughed at people like me from the other side of things. Mm-hmm. And just explaining the <laughs> myriad reasons why why women don't report mm-hmm. these kinds of things and don't want to testify. And the, the additional framing that I noticed in the 62 version and, and then in this is everything that you just said, Julie, absolutely. And then just the only thing that makes these men acknowledge how fucked up the system is, is that the system being fucked up in the way that it is by way of sort of like all of these, for these misogynistic reasons, like a sort of a survivor of crime doesn't want to speak about it because of um, a potential retaliation. The only reason they acknowledge that is because they need her to do it for their benefit. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. her agency is acknowledged because it's potentially helpful to them. Otherwise they're like, we don't, we're not getting involved in this system in a meaningful mm-hmm. way. And there is a moment in that scene where such a well-written scene because like they're both going in their own directions. He's trying to persuade her for his own benefit. And she is, you know, she's been brutalized and she's trying to explain why she, she won't. And she's so vulnerable. And she says, I also don't want to testify because they'll ask me about you. Yeah. And he goes, right. well, that's all right, but you know, it's not yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and that's yeah. the very thing, you know, that he refused to do on Max Katie's behalf. So yeah, this movie being about how the law functions in this specific way is an amazing, I think, change to the screenplay and to the story. And also it gets it something that, you know, really for a long time, only um, only horror was allowed to get at because I Spit on Your Grave is another movie about the impossibility of 
legal recourse in cases of rape and the necessity of revenge. And I think you can see that like the low budget movie is a woman taking revenge and the high budget movie is a man's uh, defense against <laughs> another man's assault on the women in his family. Yes. Yeah. And failure to do so because I don't know about you, but it brought out all of these like jingoistic qualities in me where I was like, bam, man, kill yourself. <laughs> I, I I am from the Jewish thinking class. I've never held a gun even in the Catskills. And I'm screaming. I'm yelling at the screen. You fucking pussy. Kill him with it. He, by the way, this is just after the dog. I don't give a shit. But Alex, I something you said, you were talking about the relationship between thrillers and slashers. And I mean, I think one of the mm. functions that Max Cady and any villain like him clearly serves is very similar to somebody like Jason in the Friday the 13th movies or, you know, any of the big, any of the big slasher guys, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, um, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Michael Myers, <laughs> Freddy Krueger, Marilyn Monroe. He didn't start the but, um, but that something that a character like Max Cady or any of those guys offers is the idea of a force that cannot be reasoned with and that you have to, get on the same level as to defeat and that being a myth that Americans feel the need to return to. Yeah, I remember I, so I have a neighbor who I love very much and we, an older man served in Vietnam and uh, we disagree on Mm -hmm. many things. And one of the things he said, just out of the blue was he's like, this was back in the, I think when Obama was running the first Mm. time. Mm. And he said, you know, you and I, he's like, I know that you think Obama is a good choice in this case. And you think that Bush and Cheney were bad. But I think that like America's dealing with like a lot of like evil and bad people in the world. And like, you need someone who's on their level to deal with them. Mm. And that was like very much his reasoning for like believing yeah. in the Bush presidency. Like mm-hmm. he was like, you need like, there's a lot of nefariousness and like you need so like Kate Fear was like made very specifically for people who are thinking on that on one level. And then also that guy who's like, I just want to shoot a motherfucker who like messes with my family. <laughs> right. Oh, there are people who buy guns pray that a Max Katie is going to come by someday. Right. They fantasize about it. It's like waiting for Guffman. Even the commentary on that that's handled via jokes in the first part of this in the movie. You, Julie, you're absolutely right. I mean, gun sales are driven almost exclusively by people who fantasize about about this sort of thing happening. There, I, I'm the, and I have a nuanced take on guns that I think is nuanced, whatever it's. But like that is like largely what the industry uses to sell. But there's a joke in the movie where they talk about getting a gun and like how they would probably use it on each other first and like the married couple. And that is the reality is like while people are waiting for someone that they can have their hero Mm -hmm. moment against, someone in the house ends up shooting the other person, someone shoots themselves, et cetera. So there's Mm -hmm. like that's kind of handled in passing. Like, again, if my neighbor watched the movie, he wouldn't have caught that. But that is in this movie to think about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So... Basically, Max Cady now closes in on Nick Nolte's daughter, Juliette Lewis, who is interested because he talks to her about Henry Miller. Um, and he's like, I care about your feelings. I'm listening to you. Your parents don't listen to you. But he doesn't. But he doesn't listen to her. He's just monologuing. And he's also trying to, like, guess what she needs to hear. And Right. 
but he creates the illusion of listening to her. Then he sticks his thumb in her mouth and then he kisses her and then he walks away, leaving her with all these emotions that I wouldn't have any place for at 15. I didn't, I no. wouldn't know where to put them. No. And he's very sadistic about that. Yeah. It's one of those scenes where as you're watching it, you're like, this can't be happening. I'm hallucinating this. This can't have happened in a movie. And then at this point in the plot, doesn't he hire... Well, he tries to get a restraining order. There's a lot of legal stuff he tries to do and fails miserably. So he gets like a PI played by the marvelous Joe Don Baker. Yeah. And the PI basically is like, he's watching his P's and Q's. The best I can tell you to do is like hire like some guys by the docks who will like wound him and I'm like wound him because he says it's called a hospital job and I'm watching I'm literally screaming at my television going how about the cemetery job idiot (laughs) because you're totally right about Nick Nolte being like the half measures guy yeah he's such a cuck in this yeah because he all of his ideas are like two things too late he's like honey let's go to the houseboat and it's like why didn't we think of this earlier when there was first a maniac trying to get you. Why didn't we think of going to a remote location in the middle of a rainstorm? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that too. This is a good point. Uh, and then, yeah, after we've had all this legal battling, including Gregory Peck returning as a grandstanding Southern lawyer who basically does his Atticus Finch routine about Max Cady, which is kind <laughs> of incredible that that happened in a movie. In the same white suit, which is very funny. It's incredible. And then, of course, the judge is Martin Balsam. Judge is Martin Balsam. And then the uh, the attorney on Mac, on uh, Sam Bowden's side is Robert Mitchum, who looks great as an older man. He does. Robert Mitchum always looked great. Totally. Yeah, they, they have Martin Balsam as the judge do what seems to me like the very real judge thing of, like, mispronouncing the defendant's name. <laughs> He's like, yeah, Mr. Caddy. Uh, Caddy. <laughs> and the, the fucked up plot move of, like, you know, no, Max Cady has a restraining order against you. Yes. Yeah. See how the law bends at the will of criminals. <laughs> and then looking into getting Nick Nolte disbarred. Yeah. This movie should be called Cuck Fear. He gets humiliated <laughs> over and over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> it is a lot like Duel. This movie should be called Cuck Fear is so good. <laughs> And the idea, and I feel like the idea behind the Cuck Fear movie, which also includes, obviously, um, the Charles Bronson thing, Death Wish, is like, surely if I have to, I'll rise to the occasion and stop being a cuck. But Nick Nolte never does in this movie. And that's one of the things that makes it interesting. Is Straw Straw Dogs in that category? Yeah, for sure. Straw Dogs is like the capital of Cuck Fear movies. (laughs) It's the Madison of Cuck Fear movies. Like he literally is cucking him on the boat when he's like when he when Nick Nolte's watching and you have right. that there's a lot of De Palma in, in this. Yes. There's a lot of like obviously like a lot of Hitchcock, including not not just the Bernard Herman score, which is the same mm-hmm. score from the original film. Love it. But also in that spoiler alert moment when the housekeeper turns around and it's De Niro in kind of like a trans panic horror moment, wouldn't you say? shocking yeah. and that felt extremely De Palma I was yes. like 
shocked. Like dressed to kill. Dressed to kill. It, yeah, yeah, like dressed to kill. I was shocked. And he's talked throughout this movie about being a quote woman in prison, which is like another whole thing. Like hmm. he's been absolutely he's like part of his torture was that he was like sexually brutalized in prison yeah. pretty regularly. Yeah. That Max Katie, he's making some good points. <laughs> yeah, which is like which is like Colonel Sanders giving a monologue to a chicken about, you know, <laughs> About how hard it is to feel breaded and fried. <laughs> so, yeah. So, basically, the law doesn't work. Um, Max keeps coming in closer and closer. And so, finally, Nick Nolte decides that the family is going to run away to their houseboat on Cape Fear, I guess. And just head out for the open river. And... Oh, yeah. And they flee to the houseboat after they have, like, decided to lure Max into the house to, like, catch him trespassing so that they can kill him using stand-your-ground laws, basically. Topical. Um, And Jodan Baker is there, and he's going to protect them. And then we are shocked when, yeah, we have our dress-to-kill moment where Max is disguised himself as the housekeeper kills Jodan Baker Nick Nolte runs over and slips in his blood which is incredible falls to the ground oh my god it's so much blood it's almost like a bit like he like falls he's just slipping around in the blood it's great it's so gross as Uh, an Evil Dead fan that to me is this like don't forget it's Scorsese like to me that's like one of the Martiest, right. you know, it's one of the Martiest movies ever. But that to me is yeah. like Tarantino wouldn't have done it like that. De Palma wouldn't have done it like that. Yeah. 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 It's like a touch of very, 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 very black comedy, which I yeah. love. Well, and it's like, it's, it's funny, the little things that remind you of crossovers and other movies, like the scene where Max is like beating up all these guys hired for the hospital job. It's like, Reminds me of the montage in Casino where they're showing like Joe Pesci mm. beating up all these guys while playing like Gimme Shelter, obviously. <laughs> showing and also like Goodfellas was the year before, and we have somebody, don't want to spoil Goodfellas, um, getting killed and like a huge pool of blood spreading over a floor and a shot from above. So in this case, it's like you're like, well, I've already done that, but I'm not done with that image, but I want to do something more. So what about someone slipping in it? It's also like a great tension relief i mean but but causing its own tension in the process yeah and it's also like horrifying like it's funny and horrifying i think and that's partly because it's just like one of the realities of like violence that like humans have a lot of blood in them and if it all comes out at once it creates (laughs) repercussions for physics in in a fable it's like you can yeah i think you can kind of undermine a tone that's getting too serious by being like you know when something horrible happens, it also can be slippery. Yeah, totally. It's like how the like the whole last scene in Goodfellas where the helicopter is coming in is at once like terrifying and thrilling and hilarious. Yeah, it's a fun scene. Like he does that really, really well. Like it's it almost feels like it's like in Coen Brothers territory yeah. at that point. The Coen Brothers are in Martyburg. Yes, yes, that's that's right. Yeah. And so, yeah, so they flee the house. They're like, oh, we're going to be safe now. We're driving to a remote location where no one can hear us scream. But little do they realize that Max Katie is holding on to the bottom of the car the entire time. 
for so long. It doesn't matter. He's been working out so much. It's fine. He can do it. Whatever. And he does have a strap, as I mentioned. He does have a strap, which I noticed. This I was like, oh, thank God. Yes. That yeah. makes it make a lot yeah. more sense. And yeah, they have, of course, a final showdown on the houseboat after they've piloted out onto the water and a storm has moved in. And yeah, we and really what Max wants um, is to sexually brutalize the mother and daughter, but also to have a trial. He wants a retrial and he wants to find Nick Nolte guilty. Um, and this makes me think of like another kind of classic Scorsese theme, which is like the bonds between men and the trust between men and this like sacred bond being broken where like, he's like, you betrayed me. I am the victim. And then, uh, and we can break down the finale more, but basically... Nick Nolte uses that. Well, first of all, Juliette Lewis squirts some lighter fluid on him while he's lighting one of his favorite cigars um, and he goes up in flames. And then they finish by Nick Nolte taking the handcuffs that Max Katie always has. He's really being undermined by his favorite things and cuffing his ankle to the sinking houseboat. And Max Katie goes down shouting about the Lord. He does. Um, and then he is trapped at the bottom of a body of water like Jason in Friday the 13th, part six. Yep. Well, but the, but he doesn't, like, Nick Nolte, besides handcuffing him, mm-hmm. does, like, pound his head with a rock, but it doesn't work. Yeah, he's too Which is crazy. He's too weak. <laughs> <laughs> he's too bad. He's too magical. Like, Nick Nolte's too weak. Yeah, he was just like, Ugh. So, like, Max Katie goes out speaking in tongues carried away by what I think like Nick Nolte talks about as a plot point, which is force majeure. I think God Mm. steps in at the end, Mm. frankly. I think God's the one who kills Katie. I think God is sick of his name being taken in vain by this guy (laughs) who's babbling, who goes down, like I said, speaking in tongues, babbling like he knows God. I think God was like, enough. This guy's not doing it. I will. Here's a storm. And then, you know, Sam Bowden doesn't even have like, the masculine qualifications to say, I killed Max Katie. And in the original movie, he's like, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to put you back in jail. That'll show you. And it's like the end. Oh my God. And in this, I feel like he tries, fails. And then like, God is like, I'll take it from here. And he does. And and I do think that's interesting that he mentions force majeure before, like Mm -hmm. that actually does take care of the thing. Like, you know, he couldn't do himself. What did you make of the last lines in the movie, which is essentially Juliette Lewis saying, and we never talked about this? Uh, well, first of all, I'm not surprised that family doesn't yeah, talk about maybe, a lot. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Maybe you shouldn't default to the way your family normally deals with things. I mean, that family's like got problems. <laughs> I was like, oh, you don't say. And then we have this long shot of like going into her eyes that are portrayed in the negative, like in in sort of like a negative image. We've seen that before in the movie. We've seen that happen before in the movie with with regard to her father. During SEX. And also when her dad is having that dream about Katie in the Mm. uh, the foot of the bed. Mm-hmm. Right. What was that? Do you have any feelings about that? Because I, I agree with, I love the take that like God intervened. I love that. I think that's great. Didn't strike me. Fantastic. And then we have this like, you know, it's like a very 90s take. 
Well, it starts with her talking. It it start it starts to her down the barrel, right? Like she's talking about it's like her it's her what I did this summer presentation, right? The, yeah, at the beginning of the movie, we have her delivering a little presentation, right? And that's the end of her. Like she's basically giving her like her you know school report. Um, but I will say, like, as far as, like, we don't talk about that, like, it's kind of the opposite of Max Katie, like, won't shut the fuck up about, like, the last 14 years, like, she's moving, she's moving forward, but she's also giving, I I do think that, like, I get the sense that, and I'm not, I don't want to speak on behalf of him, but I do get the sense that, like, Wesley, like, Strick sat down being like, what's this family's deal, and it's, like, ultimately the heart of this movie is, like, a troubled family, I think. Right. So I do think that that's what we're leaving in it, and as far as, like, that eye, like, the the negative, I think that's stylistic, I think that's almost like Marty, like, pretending he's Hitchcock and playing with sure. the vertigo, like, vertigo effects, like, kind of having a good time saying, like, well, it started as a thriller, but now it's a horror movie. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. But I could sure. be wrong. What do you think, Sarah? I mean, I think the difference between I was thinking earlier, the difference between thrillers and horrors, a lot thrillers and horrors, the difference between thrillers (laughs) and horror movies, I think often is pacing um, and kind of building to something. And this idea of starting in the real world and gradually moving over by degrees into something else, which I feel like, I don't know, to an extent, I feel like thrillers are horror movies for grownups. Um, and like not mm-hmm. to imply that they're more mature, but that they are more used to watching a genre that like takes its time to like move them over into a heightened reality. Do you think that the like close up of Juliet Lewis's eyes as we go out is all kind of about how she was in the center of this whole thing as a witness and that ultimately mm-hmm. this is a movie about sexual violence and it's repercussions and and what it's like to you know even if you're Mm -hmm. not actually raped like to have almost been and to been the subject of all of this like brutal unwanted attention and 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 seeing everything that people are like not taking care of her to make sure she doesn't see and experience and yeah Yeah. no i mean to that point like no one gives her the correct attention, right? Like her father under the guise of protecting her grabs her Mm -hmm. in her bed in an extremely jarring and upsetting scene, grabs her by in the bed, shakes her and is like yells in her face. And she is very, she's like, get the fuck out of here, obviously. Mm -hmm. And like the people who are doing stuff in the name of love are acting ludicrously and terrifyingly. The people who are doing stuff out of, nefarious intention are doing it under the manipulative guise of a positive attention and love. Like, and it's so it's as a result, like it's not surprising that she is not exactly sure where to turn, Mm -hmm. which I think is familiar for many people in many situations where it's like the people who say they're here for me are here for me in a way that is not actually helpful. And the people who are not here for me are coming under the guise of being here for me. So like who is here for me? I'm confused. Mm -hmm. I think that like one of the things we don't want to admit as a society about why so many girls favor like older scary boyfriends is that they're like a good way to get away from your dad you know not that your preference is for someone (laughs) scary but scary grown-up men tend to have a preference for teenage girls as it turns out but yeah to speak to the closing shot I mean the like part of me is afraid that it's just like and I don't I don't know I don't necessarily think this but is afraid that it's like a dumb kind of like 
90s horror movie ending where it's like she's seen too much is she a killer too like if this was something like kiss the girls i feel like that would be clearly the meaning but is it just like about sort of the yeah the like what she has seen and cannot talk about but it i don't know in one way or another it's about the trauma of her existence aging into a woman in a culture where we've seen what Ileana Douglas has to deal with after an assault. You know who was the, the only one who gave her the right attention was the housekeeper. Yeah. Yeah. She had the best relationship yeah. with her. Absolutely. That was that was her best friend when she said, oh, you know, she had a brother and Jessica Lange's like, oh, really? I have, I have a question for, for both of you. Do, you. do you buy Max Katie picking up Ileana Douglas in that bar? How, how much of this movie do you think is about class and like the intellectual mm. class versus the, the the people that go to prison and and is Ileana kind of like in between culturally economically like like she's very flirty she's very drunk mm. I watched that scene a couple times because I part of me was like he put yeah, something in her drink or she's just super friendly or what did he say to lubricate this I think that if you're depressed over being stood up by somebody who like you're you know in some kind of torturous affair with then it like makes sense for you to be propelled into the arms of a max katie i think that's a great point sarah and i think that that's what we're led we're led to see those things sort of one after the other because it's mentioned not just once it's mentioned like several times that she's like i'm here because this guy stood me up she says to nick nolte like i wouldn't have been basically i wouldn't have been there you didn't stand me up and i really like your take julie where like she's like a bridge between classes Mm -hmm. because like yes she is with the firm but she's you know she's a law clerk at the firm she's being you know very arguably to assertively like her relationship with nick nolte there's nothing appropriate about it on nick Mm -hmm. nolte's behalf well, and then when you think about the other working class folks in this film, it's like Nick Nolte hires a housekeeper to clean his house and like a private detective to to follow him. And then he hires like people to beat him up. And, and it's like when he finally gets a gun in your in his hands and, and they show his hands, you're like, oh, my God, Marty's showing us how soft this guy's hands are. I, well, I do want to say, like, I think that that was in all the shifts that he takes on that Scorsese takes on and I'm sorry please remind me of the person who wrote the name what's that person Wesley Strick all the modifications from the movie that had to do with women were brilliant because Mm. it's not just the the issue with sort of what you know and like arguably Juliette Lewis is the main character in this movie and we see it through oh we see these false protagonists but like she's the one whose journey is ultimately sort of affected by all sides. I think you're right. Even down to like the like drifter versus Ileana Douglas as a character. Like, you know, when you have a drifter, like why is she drifting? Like what she, like there's enough stuff for you to be like, as a, as a viewer in 1962, watching this movie and going like, what was this woman up to in the first place? Like, oh, she didn't deserve it. But like, there was like enough sort of like plausible deniability stuff in there to, if you are a biased viewer already, like have a biased take. But in this, like Ileana Douglas is as much a, you know, being mistreated by the quote heroes mm-hmm. of the movie as she is by De Niro. Yeah. All of those pieces that didn't have to happen, this could have been remade with the same dynamics of the first movie. It would have worked. It worked before. It would have been Scorsese. It would have sold it. But like all of those pieces, and, and you know, it's like this, the shit, Sarah, please help me. What is the mm-hmm. wife's name in Goodfellas? 
Oh, Karen. Lorraine Bracco. And what is Sharon Stone's name in um, Casino? Shang Yeah, all of Scorsese's treatment of like the characters who could be just like the woman, yeah. like the spouse, the girlfriend. He's always touching some extremely layered power dynamic when he's touching mm-hmm. those people in a way that he just did not have to do. I think Marty's interested in women is why I think Goodfellas is <laughs> yeah, a better movie than yes. The Godfather. I think The Godfather is one of the most myopic. It's like, are you insane? Like the only <laughs> woman in this is Diane King. Like, what about what about Marlon Brando's wife? She sings and that's all you're going to do? It is incredible how not a character she is. What was her story? Yeah, her character is sings at a wedding. He's just what he, but Coppola just doesn't, he's literally not curious. He doesn't yeah. care. That's why he made a bad vampire movie. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I was also thinking, this is so sad, but like Juliette Lewis's character's biggest connection with the housekeeper and Jessica Lange's with the dog. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Rough. The lonely, the feminine urge to be lonely. (laughs) Yeah. I want to celebrate that. I mean, I think that that's what this gets done right. And I think a lot of, like I would imagine, I don't know how people responded to this when it came out, but like, Cape Fear is a classic. It's like, why do you need to remake it? What's the point? Like, mm-hmm. whatever. But like, this is a movie where the remake actually added a bunch of levels that the, you know, maybe a movie made in 62 wasn't mm-hmm. ready to take on or just didn't take on for whatever reason. Well, would you say it's fair to say that like the original movie had like incipient themes that you know, that it didn't explore sufficiently, partly because of the production code and partly because of just the people working on it. Yeah, for, of course, totally. I think it's a B-movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love a B-movie. But then, the, the, you know, maybe in the course of a rewrite, that, like, the themes are there. Like, they're under the surface. And whoever wrote the story, like, did so because whether they knew it consciously or not, felt the themes and then somebody was able to like bring them out maybe or like tighten them up i think the women in the first film were possessions i think that they may as well have been Mm -hmm. like a a cadillac and a and a house they would have burned down or keyed Mm -hmm. i mean frankly i i I don't know no disrespect to polly bergen ever meant Mm -hmm. but i definitely think like you know it's just a they're definitely more like two dimensional. I think there's only two characters in the in the except for Telly Savalas. Telly Savalas, I can't believe I'm Telly now mentioning only now mentioning Telly Savalas is in the first one as Joe Don Baker. <laughs> Telly, yeah, Telly Savalas is our Joe Don Baker. I can't believe that hasn't come up at all. Oh wow! And if you're wondering, does he wear a hat? The answer is yes. Of course, he he absolutely wears a hat. <laughs> full hat. Uh, he's so great but it's really about two men and the and one man is like my family well in a way like you know i am only making this reference because sarah and i not long ago saw strangers on a train in the theater like the first one Mm. feels like a lot like strangers on the train because it's it is just two men like creeping each other out or like one going after the other and trying to outmaneuver Mm -hmm. the creep and to your point julie yeah like i think it doesn't it is like cat and mouse there's only two characters. Yeah. The women are possessions. Like yeah. the women are things mm-hmm. are, are a way to get to him. And that's kind of it. Women are a means of intimacy with a man who you see as your shadow self. Beautiful. They're like the tokens you trade back and forth. That's interesting. Yeah. I can see there being fanfic between Sam Bowden and Max Cady for sure. 
Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, boy. Yeah. Mm. There were there were some parts where De Niro leaned queer. He always does. Which parts? Him talking in the car to Nolte when like he's like when his first interaction is I mean that is straight up strangers on a train because like it's like this like he's cruising him he's cruising yeah he's cruising him he's talking about his experiences in prison he's talking about how he was a woman the way that in the way that he's his like affect I think it's also the fact that De Niro should not do a southern accent like that's probably it's sometimes it's like it's it slips into something else <laughs> I think that that might be happening mm-hmm. what does it slip into Alex I'd love to know if if any of your listeners who are southern like how they feel about that accent because De Niro doesn't do accents a lot and and he really (laughs) went for it for this one he went hard (laughs) it's it's also interesting because it's like this movie like a part of it is Robert De Niro's charisma as a performer um and the fact that like he knows how to steal a scene and Nick Nolte is Nick Nolte also has charisma, but I would say it's a very different kind of charisma, and I, but I can't really put it into words. Yeah, Julie, how would you describe to someone who has never seen, somehow never seen Nick Nolte, never seen him act, doesn't know anything about Nick Nolte, like how would you describe Nick Nolte? <laughs> I mean, he's sort of got, he, I mean, he can be a galoot, right? Like he's got that like yeah. <laughs> that size, that bulk to him. And he's a he's a blonde, but he's not a kind of Yale like whiff and poof kind of blonde. He's kind of like <laughs> got like a, a sandier, grittier. Plus, his voice has got that like gravel to it. And when he loses his temper, I'd say it's interesting in that like Americana, like um, like I think of him in like Paul Schrader Affliction era, like sure. where it, 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 he's like a novel. Sometimes he can be like an American novel. Hmm. But as a younger man, I think he was almost like a mutation of like the 60s handsome guy. Like it was almost like we we did an experiment and this happened. (laughs) That that was such a beautiful description of Nick Nolte. (laughs) And Chris Christopherson was the result of the next round of tests. Oh, that was a success. Yes, that we're like, we're putting this on the market now. Absolutely. (laughs) But but I've always had mixed emotions towards him as as an actor. I've I've never... um, Nolte? Yes, I I liked him in the short he did with... um, Roseanne Arquette in New York Stories, the one that Scorsese directed, oh, yeah. where he played a painter. I thought he was a very convincing, abstract expressionist painter because it's the same kind of like dick slinging, but also stymied, like the human equivalent of like oil paint on a canvas kind of guy. Sure. But um, I-, I thought he was great in this role. But like I said, if it had been someone like Kevin Klein, I, I would have had more affection towards Sam Bowman. Bowman? Bowden? Bowden, yeah. We've been talking about him for so long, I forgot his name. That's not good. You should know someone more the more you talk about them. We've been calling him Nick Nolte. Yeah, I have have more affection for someone like Kevin Klein, whereas this, I was just getting more and more frustrated with him. Yeah, I've never seen a role, a Nick Nolte role where you weren't a little confused about where you stood. That's interesting, yeah. Hmm. Sarah, Mm. What are some things that you feel like are important to acknowledge in a bigger way? Yes. 
Well, okay. So, I mean, it's incredible we've made it this long without mentioning it, but the I think the score, which Oof. is by Bernard Herrmann and arranged here incredibly by Elmer Bernstein, so you truly could not do better, is such a big part of this movie. It's so huge and overbearing, and I love it so much. And let's all do an impression of it on the count of three. Okay, one, two, three. I used to I I'm psychotic and I love uh, all of the music projects of Mike Patton and he has like an avant-garde metal band where they cover only themes from like 20th century horror movies oh that's brilliant what a fabulous idea oh my god and it's I listen to the Cape Fear I listen to Cape Fear so (gasps) regularly in that format when I was a teenager way before I even saw anything related to it (laughs) Oh, that is so cool. I love that. I love that. So good. So good. I just, like, this is, yeah, I agree, Julie. This is Scorsese at the top of his game. It's really, I appreciate seeing a movie about kind of using a template that's very mid-century sort of white toxic masculinity to explore both, like, the fears of men and the fears of women. Um, and it feels like it's it's really about both of those things. And I also appreciate that that copy of Sexus that uh, Max gives to Juliette Lewis, he gives her under a container of Charles chips, which reminds me of the gun in the milk box <laughs> in Goodfellas. What rich people ate instead of ruffles. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and I guess like before we get totally wrapped up, Julie, like I feel like is this an important movie to you? I, I I think so. I think it is. I, I think it's um, I think it's outstanding. And I and I as as upsetting as I find the violence, I'm it doesn't upset me for the wrong reasons because I don't think it's glib and I don't think it's like, I don't think it's ironic. No, I, I think that scene with Ileana Douglas is so mm-hmm. upsetting, and I actually it. How about this? It's so upsetting. I appreciate it. Mm. It actually, I think does. I think it does a lot of heavy lifting explaining why women are afraid of things that other folks don't necessarily have to think about women and LGBT folks. I think, I think that mm-hmm. like, I think that he's doing more with the violence than just like having a great time. Yeah. Although the blood slipping, I'm sure everybody had a great <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, that was a fun day. And I, I um, and I, I just, I appreciate what you were saying, Alex, like the, what, what's truthful about it. It does seem like, something that is obviously it's stylish because it's marty but i I think it's about more than the style Mm. and i and and i just i i really like that it's it's meaningful to me yeah for sure yeah i I was gonna say is the daddy question tasteless in this movie (laughs) i was gonna say why don't why don't we do um max katie or hannibal lecter who do you pick as your fighter your road trip buddy whatever That's a great way. That's a great question. Well, road trip, road trip. I mean, we know where Max is riding, regardless of whether he's invited. <laughs> Hannibal's in the front seat being like, actually, Puccini is better than Verdi. <laughs> <laughs> he 
would say that. Changing your music. He would never talk about 14 years, so we know that that's good. But the good thing about having Hannibal on the road trip is like, I feel like he'd know what to order off of every fast food menu when you stop <laughs> by the rest. I mean, he'd just be like, well, Burger King is actually about the fries. I really like the idea that he's like a connoisseur. I want to see the movie where he does eat fast food. What if, wait, what if it's like the trip, you know, with Steve Coogan and Rob Brighton, but it's Hannibal Lecter right. and yes. Max Katie and they're driving around the American South where they're both from. I love it. I love it. That's so good. And he knows he knows all the secret menu items mm. to order. <laughs> he can get a grimace shake made. Uh, do you think Hannibal Lecter... Do you think he would do, I like to do the, I'm sure this originated on TikTok, the McDonald's thing where you like get the vanilla soft serve and the iced coffee and you dump the soft serve in the iced coffee. Do you think he would like that? (laughs) I think he would love it. (laughs) I think he'd find it very novel. Ah, that's nice. Yeah. So amazing. I guess like we're we're saying that we enjoy this movie, that it's like a weird combination of upsetting and enjoyable, which is we need a word for maybe. Important. (laughs) (laughs) This movie's important, otherwise known as upsetting and enjoyable.
everybody thank you so much thank you to carolyn kendrick for that beautiful rendition of lullaby remember you can find it on bandcamp uh support her on bandcamp friday she gets 100 percent of the proceeds and then it streams next week keep an ear out for that keep an eye out for that just pay attention thank you to julie klausner for being here for talking about cape fear thanks to carolyn kendrick again for producing the episode and editing the episode thanks to miranda zickler for editing the episode thank you to fresh lush for providing the beats that make the episode sound so sweet we appreciate you lush thanks to uh you for listening thanks for finding us on twitter or whatever it was called now and instagram and all of the places that we are now and all of the places we will ever be <laughs> thanks for supporting us on patreon and apple podcast subscriptions where you get bonus episodes thank you for being you we appreciate you we're in the middle of the summer i'm just glad we get to do it all together with y'all thanks for being here thanks for supporting us take good care everybody and don't forget that you my friend are good good